Chesterton, he was trying to think out for himself a way to get out of this pessimism that was surrounding him and the mm-hmm. materialism because he, he had a sense that wasn't right. So yeah. basically, orthodoxy is his journey from trying to figure out the world without being a Christian and then suddenly finding every solution he found was, was already there in Christianity. And that's what led to his faith. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I am pleased to have on the show Father Joseph Fessio, founder and editor of Ignatius Press, and also the founding uh, provost and uh, theologian in residence at Ave Maria University uh, many years ago. So we're delighted to have uh, you back at Ave and delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you, Michael. I'm here. My voice is not here. I, uh, God is telling me I've been talking too much. We're giving a course <laughs> here on Chesterton, and uh, it's two and a half hours every evening, uh, three days a week, and I've uh, used all my reserves of vocal energy. So <laughs> well, we'll do the best we can. Yeah, we're pleased to have you here, and we are excited today to talk more about uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, as you mentioned, you are teaching a class along with Joseph Pierce. Uh, to our students uh, this semester. And, you know, one thing just kind of beginning uh, is this kind of, I think just the basic question is why Chesterton? Listeners may know that, you know, you did your doctoral dissertation under, um, you know, then Professor Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. Uh, You worked with Henri, Henri de Lubach, uh, the great, you know, patristic and really just great dogmatic theologian um, par excellence. Uh, you wrote on Hansers von Balthasar. Uh, so many kind of brilliant theologians that have dominated 20th century Catholic theology. And yet, uh, I've, I know that in your 40 years or more of teaching, uh, you've consistently turned to G.K. Chesterton and his writings. Uh, so could you say a little, a word or two about, you know, why Chesterton as one of your favorite authors to teach and to study? Sure. Well, when I finished my doctoral studies in Germany in 1974, I came back to the university, to the United States, to the University of San Francisco, uh, and I taught my first class in theology, and I was very excited because I'd done my, my thesis on Hans von Balthasar, uh, and so I took his book, uh, Theological Anthropology, or Das Ganze im Fragment, you know, the whole in the part, to this freshman class, and I thought, oh, this is great, you know, and Oh, man, was that terrible. They, they didn't understand anything. I tried to explain things. Their eyes were just glazed, and yes. I, that, that mm-hmm. didn't work too well. Uh, th- then the next year, I thought, you know, I'm going to teach a course on uh, Lewis's Paralandra, C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, because that's a very, very theological book, even though it's written as a science fiction thing. Yes. But, you know, and I taught that. Uh, and it was a little better, except that they didn't get the theology part of it. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> it was just a story. So I, I've kind of, my teaching altered a bit to teach undergraduates. And uh, I found that there's a lot of theology in Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, and it's sometimes a better entree for the students who aren't majoring in theology you know, yes. uh, to, to bring them into theological thinking. And I told the class when we first began our class here on Monday night that I think that in the 20th century there, there are three great lights in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were 
uh, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and J.R. Tolkien, uh, and they're all literature type. Although Tolkien, I mean, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis got his degree in philosophy, really. Yes. Yes. Uh, Chesterton didn't have a degree at all, uh, and, and Tolkien was, was, of course, in literature. But they uh, embodied in an incarnate way the, the, the Catholic view of the world yeah. and of man and of mm-hmm. God. And then I, I told the, the class that, you know, in the generation after them, more or less, we had three other great lights. We had de Lubach, who was born in 1896, and we had Balthazar, born in 1905, and uh, Ratzinger, born in 1927. Uh, and they were more specifically theological. However, all three were highly literate, you know, in the arts and culture and, and music, mm-hmm. and especially Balthazar and Ratzinger. It wasn't just theology and philosophy. It was literature. In fact, Balthazar's, Balthazar's thesis, which ended up being three volumes, The Apocalypse of the German Soul, uh, was a you know a tour de force of all modern German literature with the, from the aspect of eschatology. So I I found you know after studying you know Balthazar who's one of the deeper theologians and with Ratzinger as my guide that I found that the theology the same theology the same view yeah. was there mm-hmm. you know in fact as I told the class Chesson will throw off a little sense here or there and there's a tremendous you know theological depth to it, but you have to unpack the thing. For example, this thing on evolution, you know, where he talks about if evolution is simply saying that, you know, from an ape where you got to a human being over time, uh, it took a long time, uh, that's okay. But the fact that it happened slowly does not explain how a non-rational being can become a rational being. Mm -hmm. But it's not a problem for Christians because God is outside time, he says, and can work slowly as well as quickly as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. So that you could teach almost a course yeah. on evolution and creation uh, and use that three or four sentences as the basis for it. So mm-hmm. I, I find uh, the theological content of, of Chesson to be you know, quite extraordinary. In fact, you probably know this story, but uh, and you are... A, a, a lover of St. Thomas, which yes. we all should be. Yes. Uh, uh, two of the greatest, if probably the two greatest uh, Thomists in the 20th century were Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson. And I have it from one of Gilson's students who was taking a course from Gilson up in Toronto, St. Michael's College in Toronto. And uh, I forget what year it was, but this is the year that Chesterton wrote his book on Thomas Aquinas. And it came, and you know the students saw him get the book, you know, one seminar, and and so they, they wondered what Gilson was going to say the next day, you know. And Gilson came in the room the next day, and he threw the book across the room against the wall, and he said, "I've been studying Thomas all my life. I'm a Thomistic scholar." He said, "I couldn't write a book as good as that. That book is the best book I've read on Thomas Aquinas." And yes. how did Chesterton do? I mean, he didn't read the Summa. Mm-hmm. You know, but he just, he intuits things, you know. So yeah. <clears throat> there's a, you know, that that's one reason I use them is that mm-hmm. just as Christ told parables and did not, you know, teach a metaphysics class, mm-hmm. good as those metaphysics classes are, to human beings, we're, we're, we're body and soul, we get things through the senses. And so if you can embody the word, uh, then you have a better chance of, entering into a person's mind and heart. 
And of course, what's the model for that is the word became flesh. Yes, yes. That's really, wow, that's uh, so well put. And I, I do think, in, especially Chesterton and, and Lewis, as, as well as Tolkien, they somehow uh, kind of like re, they, they allow you to kind of walk back into the Middle Ages and hear these uh, hear these ideas in a fresh contemporary way that you don't even realize you're doing it. It doesn't sound old, but they're communicating classical themes from Augustine, from Aquinas, from Dante, uh, and yet they do it in a way that's conversational, filled with images. Uh, sometimes they tell stories. Uh, both all right, Chester and Lewis both wrote novels as well as uh, you know prose works. Uh, even their apologetic works, because Chesterton, it was a huge influence on many other great kind of well-known converts. His conversion kind of spawned many others. Uh, he was able to kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, enter into kind of sympathetically the view of his opponents and then show how, in a way, kind of ultimately silly <laughs> those views are. And he can say this in a way without uh, hubris or pride because he himself held them. And he's really just describing, I held this view when I was a younger man. Yes. And now looking back, I see how how silly it was. And ultimately, right, orthodoxy, which is the book we're going to talk about today. Kind of, to. <laughs> yeah, cl- classical, <laughs> <We get> there. <laughs> classical um, kind of Catholic Christian orthodoxy ends up kind of being the view in a way that puts us most in contact with reality. And these modern philosophies or atheistic philosophies in a way are kind of rejecting not only part of orthodoxy, but they end up rejecting part of reality. Yes, and uh, what you said there about Lewis, for example, having been a heretic, so to speak, or a non-believer, then coming to it, now he understands the position. Well, orthodoxy, as you know, is not... Uh, volume one of anything is volume two. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he first wrote a book called Heretics. This yes. is in 1908. He's not a Christian. He's a Christian. He's not a Catholic yet. <clears throat> that comes later. But he writes a book on modern heresies. And he was he was in the period, you know, 1890s. That was kind of the pessimism, Schopenhauer type thing. And uh, nihilism was very, very prominent then. But in materialism, and so he wrote about these heresies. And, of course, someone said, well, well that we, we're all interested in what you think these are heresies. What, what's your philosophy, Mr. Chesterton? Mm-hmm. He said, well, you asked me, I'll write a book. And so he did. Yeah. And what you said about imagination, it, one of the big themes, it's not thematic, but it runs through the book, is the imagination mm-hmm. as a source of knowledge and a source of truth. And this is he has in common with these other writers like Tolkien, I remember when I first read Tolkien, I was studying, you know, doing my thesis on Balthazar, <clears throat> and I could only write about, you know, one page a day. But the Anglistic Library was next to the Theological Library. I went over there, and I'd been reading Lewis with uh, this group of uh, Christian soldiers. I was an army chaplain part time, and uh, we were reading Lewis. We read everything by Lewis, you know. And I, I saw this book, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings here. And on the back, you know, it had Lewis's uh, blurb for it, you know. Okay, yeah. uh, I still remember, you know, mm-hmm. uh, bright as it was burning fire and sharp as a sword, you know. Mm-hmm. Thing. Oh, okay. So I would read that back and forth on the bus from the apartment I, where I lived to the university. And it was fascinating, but I, I had, you know, I had this sense that 
this is a Catholic book. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is a deeply Catholic book, but I can't prove it, but I just feel it, you know. Well, then, of course, you find out Tolkien wrote to his friend, Father Murray, who was an mm-hmm. English Jesuit, that, uh, yes, Lord of the Rings is a book Catholic in, in its intent, uh, even more Catholic in its revision. Uh, it It's all uh, at the feet of Our Lady, you know. It was just tremendous to see Tolkien himself saying, this is a Catholic yes. book, and it is. Mm-hmm. So, and what you mentioned, too, about uh, seeing things like freshly, seeing like, like, like they're new. One of the great things about Chesterton, and it's very, you know, very obvious in orthodoxy, is that the sense of wonder. Uh, he says, you want to see things as if you've seen for the first time. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is an example from... from uh, everlasting man but he says you know a man on a horse you get used to that well wait a minute that's not a normal thing you have to imagine what it's like for the first man to see this creature coming out of the forest and uh and then riding him how exciting that would be yes and so he he does that with with various ideas in in orthodoxy yeah and maybe just to kind of uh develop that one point a little bit further Uh, he actually says in the beginning, right in this chapter called, I think, uh, right, the ma- the maniac or the madman, the, mani- the maniac, the maniac. The maniac. Um, but where he actually says that kind of uh, be- like insanity, right, lunacy, these different themes stem from an excessive use of reason, not an excessive use of imagination, which right. is a right a very bold claim. Uh, but how would you right discuss that a little bit of that idea that maybe we the modern world kind of we we worship reason uh, and yet he wants to suggest in some ways you know reason alone can actually uh, yes, lead us astray. Insanity is not a defect of reason; it's an excess of reason. And he, the parent the paranoid is an example. You know, you tell the paranoid, well, no, then not a. Everybody's not looking at you. Yes. Look at that, that, that guy there's looking at that way. Yeah, he's trying to fool me, you know? Yes. So they have a theory to explain everything. Mm-hmm. They have lost the sense of proportion, the sense of form, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that's Chesterton's point is that reason by itself, without the full human complement of, of faculties, including imagination, can lead you astray. Well, mm-hmm. look, we see it to bring it down to, to contemporary. Uh, the radical traditionalists, you know. Mm. Uh, I've had this thing, I just had an, an argument the other day, uh, a discussion, argument, about the fragments of the host, you know. Mm. Well, it's bread, you know. Okay. Uh, and therefore, you have to, you know, hold your fingers together and everything else. I said, well, you know, bread bread actually has two different meanings. One is, the, you know, it's a chemical thing. You know, you got certain things, molecules in there. The other one is a human thing. It's a loaf in front of you. Between them, you know, uh, it's hard to draw the line, but you can't want to pick up all the molecules of bread that might have spread somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the example I use is, because uh, I'm from California and in San Francisco, and we got a bay there called San Francisco Bay, and it, it goes into the Pacific Ocean. So we all know the difference between San Francisco Bay and Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. but where is the where's the line between them? Mm-hmm. There is no line between them. You mm-hmm. try and think it through too much, right? Well, one is this this is essence is the ocean, the essence is the bay. 
you know, they can't be in between, right? So but that's reason run amok. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah, it's interesting. I think Pascal and his uh, criticism of uh, Descartes uh, makes a similar argument about uh, the where he mentioned something like we don't know when the dusk or, you know, we don't know in a way when night turns oh, okay. into day, but we certainly know the difference between night and day. Exactly. But if we want to get what Descartes says we need for reason to function, which is a clear and distinct idea, well, we just we don't live in that world of absolute certainty. But he also says, nor do we have the world of absolute doubt. And in part, maybe that's what kind of Chesterton is getting at when he says, right, uh, certain modern philosophies of maybe atheism, pessimism, uh, these sorts of different elements, materialism, they they kind of, he, he describes them right as a circle where they kind of are complete and you can't break out of them. They're just too small to fit the world in. Right. And right, our own intuitive sense that, um, you know, and it's interesting, right? The most intuitive sense he has is some idea that's question is existence is good. Yes. Right. That that when a kid first in, child first encounters reality, there's a wonder and a surprise and a sense that this is good. Uh, and that in a way is the one thing that you can't you have to begin with. You can't argue to. Right. And that's why he his first chapter is called In Defense of Everything Else. So as he gave his introduction or chapter one, I think. Yes. Uh, well, what does that mean in defense of everything else? Well, he says, I'm not going to defend that we all want to have a life that is imaginatively adventurous and with the surprises and, and so on. Yeah. We can be grateful for things. We see things and we're thankful for them. I'm not going to defend that because if you don't accept that, well, we can't even talk. It's the first principle, basically. Yeah. But And then also what you said about Descartes. Basically, you know, Descartes was sort of the, the if you want to pick an an origin again there you can't have a perfect beginning like the dawn but yes I mean, certainly he's considered to be the beginning of rationalism and the enlightenment and so on and it worked its way out into pessimism and materialism and monism and pantheism and all these sorts of things and so Cheston is attacking i shouldn't say that because he doesn't really attack he mm-hmm. really he really approaches things you know and he's very he was a friend of, of all the people he uh, opposed, you know, like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells mm-hmm. and so on. But but so Chesson is going towards so the, the consequences of Descartes being, uh, you know, taken through history. But what he does do, just as you said, he goes back to this principle. His principle is gratitude. He says, you know, uh, being is there, you know, uh, we, we can thank Santa Claus for putting goodies in our socks, you know, but what a, can we thank someone for putting our legs in our socks, you know? Put, yes. Uh, so, yes, yes. He, he's going back to first principles, but he does it in a way that you see the wonder, you see the childlikeness of, of yes. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you asked at the beginning, you know, well, why I study these theologians, why would I teach Chesterton and so on? I mean, for one thing, uh, well, Lewis was a theologian, I think, but of, of, of yes. sorts. But I mean, Balthazar loved Chesterton. He, yeah. he read all of Chesterton. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, and and it's interesting too the way he does that is in some ways you know for people that are uh, listeners that are more familiar maybe with Aquinas and Aristotle you will hear that Chesterton's going back to what are the first principles yes. the principles of being the principles of right the the you know that that 
um, the law of non-contradictions, and they cannot both be and not be at the same time, some notion of causality. But the way we describe it that way, it begins to sound abstract. So he begins with kind of a simpler thing, which is that it is good to be, which is, and just that, it, like, we ought to thank, we, you know, in a certain sense, as we see these magical things, like in a story, we see trees bearing, you know, magical trees. Well, what about the fact that trees bear fruit? Exactly. That's kind of magical. The fact life is magical. The fact that I see is magical. All of these things are ones that we can, uh, when we observe them, we can say it's good. And then you can go back, if you think about this, to like a Thomistic principle, you would say, well, being and goodness, right, are right. convertible. Right. But being and goodness convertible sounds strange, but the simple idea, is it good that I am? Right. And in some ways, right, that's kind of goes back to the heart, not only of Aristotelian and philosophy, but really back to the heart of Genesis, right? Just yes, like Genesis wanted to, it is good right. that we are. And it, is it good that grass is green and the sky is blue? Yes. And in this Beautiful chapter, The Ethics of Elfland, which should be read for itself if you don't read the whole book. Uh, he makes that point that uh, science has these laws, you know, they consider laws like the sun rises every day, but that's, that doesn't, doesn't have to rise every day because it could be different. But the law could be different. Yes. Or, or grass is green. Yeah, we, we know scientifically that there's chloroplasm and the photons come in and some are absorbed and become energy for glucose and some. Uh, are reflected and the green wavelength is reflected and so grass is green it has to be that way a scientist would say because the molecule is such and such and that's what you need to produce the, the atp and everything adenine triphosphate uh, but uh, which is key for all for our it's all our energy mm -hmm. uh, but chess and say well it didn't have to be that way you know, God could have created a whole different universe. There's no law that says it had to be these atoms and these molecules and this periodic table and so on. So he makes us aware of two things. We've, we've mentioned both here, but just mm -hmm. to, to kind of summarize them. One is things didn't have to be the way they are. Mm -hmm. uh, like you didn't have to be here and I didn't have to be here. Yes. But things didn't have to be at all, mm -hmm. you know. So being didn't have to be. Uh, unless God, you know, pure act, you know, the creator had brought it into existence, but he could have done it differently. And he certainly could have done it without you and me. So mm -hmm. uh, he has that wonderful thing in there about, <laughs> he says, uh, people often talk about, you know, failed genius as a, someone who uh, a might have been. But he says, what I like to think of is a might have not been, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we, we might not have been at all. Yes. Yeah, so, so it, right, that wonder that anything exists exactly. is a wonderful thing. And to think that, that the existence of anything is really uh, the gift of a creator. And yeah. then each thing that does exist was somewhat willed to be. As he describes it, I think he says that, right, even, I think he says, right, when we see nature happening on its own, we often see things crumbling and decaying. And when things stay constant, it's because there's a person at work continuing them, right? If you build a bridge and you don't continue to maintain it, it will fall apart, um, right? Even birds, if they build a nest and they don't continue to build it, it will fall apart. So when we see things being maintained, 
we ought to think, oh, wait a second, this is the sign of a personal. So when we see things in creation being right maintained, even the whole laws of physics, uh, why not see them not merely as the process of material randomness, but it would be more understandable to see them as the personal will of a wise, good, loving creator, which in a way he came to just by thinking about the reality. Right. Right. And then kind of discovers, oh, wait a second, what he discovered for the first time turns out to have been orthodoxy. Christian orthodoxy with the whole idea of this is what. Well, that's right. You know, he, he begins with this image. There's two ways of, of getting home. One is staying there mm-hmm. and one is going around the world and coming back there. Mm-hmm. And he said he took the second way. Uh, he, tr- he was trying to think out for himself a way to get out of this pessimism that was surrounding him and the mm-hmm. materialism because he, he had a sense that wasn't right. And so he began to think about this and about that, and every time he thought of a new idea, oh, this is this this makes sense. Oh, it's already been there. That's Christianity. That's orthodoxy. So yeah. basically, mm-hmm. orthodoxy is his journey from trying to figure out the world without being a Christian, and then suddenly finding every solution he found was was already there in Christianity, and that's what led to his faith. You know, to his being yes. a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, on this this thing about uh, nature, he talks about. It's magic, you know. Grass didn't have to be green. It's it's like in magic grass. In the ethics of Elfland, you can make grass purple. You know, you make the sky red, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, "Well, therefore, I began to realize that if all these things are magic, well, there must be a magician there somewhere." You know, uh-huh. just as you said, you know, yeah. chaos. He says, "Chaos is not interesting." In fact, there's a beautiful image in uh, <laughs> of the two poets in uh, the anarchist and the poet. Uh, in Man Who Is Thirsty, because Joseph and I are teaching that along with uh, Everlasting Man and Orthodoxy. And <laughs> the, uh, this one poet is saying, uh, you know, how boring it is to you know, get on the train and, and you get off to Victoria State. You know it's going to be that station. Every day it's the same station. And uh, uh, Symes, who's the, uh, who's the protagonist against uh, Gregory, he said, no, no, no. He says, that's the exciting thing. I mean, you know, if someone, you know, shoots up a bird with an arrow at a distance, you go, oh, that's wonderful. What if he did it 10 times in a row? Well, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it be? And so the, fa- the fact that this train always gets to Victoria Station, that's a victory. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's order. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and so he ends up by saying, uh, Simon says, uh, you take your Byron, I want my Bradshaw. Byron was a poet. Mm-hmm. Bradshaw in England is a producer of the timetables for the trains, you know. Oh, okay. So, yes. But that also, yeah. Chesterton, he does it in Orthodox, he does it everywhere. He could write about a piece of rubber band, you know, mm-hmm. or a piece of cheese, or a piece of, I mean, he would take anything and find in it being and and, and wonder, you know, and, and beauty. And, yeah. Some magic, basically. Yeah. That's great. Well, okay. uh, let's uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to maybe talk a little bit about how Chesterton introduces this idea of paradox, but paradox not as a uh, kind of a dead end of thought, but as a means to discover truth uh, that maybe is greater than we initially intuit. Okay. Uh, so we'll come back in a minute.
You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Well, welcome back, Father Fessio. And so we said we would talk a little bit about uh, his understanding of paradox. Uh, could you say more about what paradox is for Chesterton and how it helps him to illumine the truth? Sure. Well, one of the great Chesterton scholars, I would call him, is Dale Alquist, who runs the American Chesterton Society. And he, when his children became high school age, he was not satisfied with the schools in his area. So he started his own school, the Chesterton Academy. Uh, as we speak, Michael, there are, 50, there are 46 of them across the country, one in Iraq and, wow. one, in, and one in Italy, and there's going to be 16 more next year. But he goes around giving talks uh, to people as they want to found these things, and because we're good friends for many, many years. But I went to his talk when he came to uh, in San Francisco area, and in his talk, he was talking about the curriculum, and uh, at a certain part of his talk, he said, and we read Homer because, because life is a battle, you know. And we read the Odyssey because life is a journey. And we read Dostoevsky because life is a family struggle. We read Dante because life is a comedy. And we chesten because life is, and I read a paradox. He said, that's right, you know. Yes. So chesten is known for paradox, but sometimes people think, well, that means some kind of flippancy, mm-hmm. you know, or arbitrariness or just... A, a humor that with no basis in, in anything substantial. But the fact is, what is paradox? Paradox is apparent contradictions, you know. Mm-hmm. But he will say, for example, courage, what's courage? It's a tremendous desire to live, mm-hmm. but a willingness to die. You know, so yes, you, you combine yes. those things, you mm-hmm. see. So you, you can't just take one or the other. You, willingness to live, you be coward, you know. Or you just risk to die, you're foolhardy. Yeah. But you put them together, and it becomes exciting. It becomes an adventure. So for him, the idea of paradox is that you have these qualities which seem to be incompatible, but in fact, there's a way they fit, and Christianity is the one that makes them fit properly. Like, he'll talk about, uh, they criticize the church for being pacifist, you know, because turn the other cheek. On the other side, they criticize the church for the Crusades, for being bellicose, you know. But the, how does the church handle that? Well, you've got you've got the passive, you, you've got the religious orders, you've got the monasteries on one hand, you've got the Templars on the other, but it's all part of one mm-hmm. one organism. You yeah, know? yeah, right. Catholics both fast and feast. Right. Right. You know, yeah. but it's uh, and somehow, how do those two go together? Well. You know, it's it's because of its reality, right? In a way, both the right. bridegroom is both with us and not with us. Yes. So we have to do both. And and maybe even that goes back to this earlier sense of both, right, faith and reason, reason and imagination. Uh, you can think about it like faith without reason would end up probably in kind of fanaticism, right? Believing anything, right. believing believing kind of uh, absurd things about oneself and about God. Right. So we need reason, but reason without faith 
uh, will 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 kind of collapse upon itself. Right. Because reason itself, as Chesterton says, is something you have to have faith in. You That's can't right. argue to argument. That's you have right. to have faith that your reasoning skill, that reason is real. Then, and so, right, he even says, like, if you begin with one mystery, namely the mystery of God and existence that I cannot explain from that, then I can explain a little bit about everything else. Right, and he uses an image for that because mm-hmm. that you've expressed it perfectly and philosophically. Yes. But what he would say, and Lewis actually follows him in this, is that the sun is the one thing you can't look at directly. Yes. But it illumines everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's like I was saying on uh, during the class, based on this book here, that that to give an example of that is that philosophy and, and reasoning can come to the idea of God as pure act, uh, and God is as eternal and infinite and without limits. Yes. Ah, but what about the Trinity? Mm-hmm. Philosophy can't get to that, <clears throat> and yet the Trinity, because there are. Limits in a sense that the Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, right? But they're they're God, Father's God, but He's not the Son, and so on. Well, that explains creation, because if in the Islamic view of things God is a monist God, uh, there's no love. By the way, there's 99 names for God in the Quran, mm-hmm. right? But two of them that don't exist: Father is one, and love is the other. Yeah, those two names they're not names of God. Well, mm-hmm. they can't be. Why? <clears throat> because you can't just love yourself. I mean, love is mm-hmm. something which is between persons, right? And so if God were only one, then in order to love, he'd have to create, which would mean he's dependent upon creation to be love. So now suddenly we have God who's dependent upon his creation. Yeah. So th- there's, there's the example, and it, it comes through in uh, this book because he says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. But then he says, it's not good for God to be alone either. <laughs> yes, that uh, is beautiful. But that the, yeah. the, the, the mystery of the Trinity yeah. actually makes creation intelligible. Mm-hmm. Without that yeah. mystery, yeah. you can't afford it. And I like the example he gives of um, when he talks about kind of sometimes maybe <clears throat> the paradox, like uh, Christianity is criticized for, you know, being, you mentioned, pacifistic on the one hand, militaristic on the other. Well, but it's somehow both. Uh, it somehow is too into marriage because it wants people just to have marriage and children, but then it's against marriage because it calls people to celibacy. Well, well, what is it? You know what I mean? And, right. and, he, and he kind <clears throat> of gives the image though of a mountain peak, which is you can fall off on one side or the other, but the thrilling thing about the romance of orthodoxy as yes. he describes it is that it stays along the mountain peak. It could fall into right hating the body. It could fall into lo- worshiping the body, but it's it does both. It could fall into hating marriage. It could fall into worshiping marriage. Somehow it stays at the top. It could fall into only reason, only right. faith, but it stays at that peak. And I think that's a way that, you know, we kind of see through the paradox, we get to this excellence. Uh, and I think that's just a yeah, beautiful... Says, you know. <clears throat> there's an infinity of angles at which one may fall, oh. only one at which one stands straight. And that's one of the most beautiful passages in the book that the, the, the wild adventure of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And I'd read it, but I, I don't want to cry on camera. I can't, wow. I can't read that without weeping. It's so beautiful. Uh, just what wow. you said. But you said it, mm-hmm. and I will say it, and we, we do it kind of in a, a, a you know, clear, clear his, he's clear, but he says it in such a poetic yes, way. Yeah. It just, it's like music. You know? mm-hmm. That is really, uh, what maybe just uh, as, as we're getting close to <clears throat> concluding, uh, is there kind of one 
thing that you would say say of uh, a listener is thinking of picking up orthodoxy is there one thing you would say uh here's a reason to read it well i i don't think you can be a fully formed catholic without ha- in in the modern period without having read uh, orthodox and everlasting man and mm-hmm. i would also say the uh, lord of the rings mm-hmm. those I mean, of course, that can't be taken to the total extreme either. Yes. But uh, Chesson was was a brilliant Catholic apologist uh, who brings you to the joy of the faith, but he says things about the sorrow that we have. Yes. In fact, mm-hmm. he's got a chapter on the abandonment of Christ on the cross, which is Balthazar, mm. in, in one paragraph, mm. he's got the whole theology of Holy Saturday there. Mm-hmm. You know? And the yeah. way he says it, uh, it's, it I mean, I, I would say it's, it, the book is worth it just for two or three passages, mm-hmm. even though everything is worth reading. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's illuminating, it's encouraging, it's inspiring. That's good. And I, 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 think, I think that uh, he should eventually be canonized. Oh, wow, that's a well. No, we will maybe have to have another uh, podcast one day talking about that. Right. I do want to ask you three quick questions sure. before we leave, <clears throat> just to help our listeners get to know you a little bit. Um, what's what's a book you're reading? Pardon me. What's a book you're reading now? A book I'm reading. I'm reading a 700 page biography of Hans von Balthasar, which is fascinating. Uh-huh. That's but it's in German, so I, okay. <laughs> I can't recommend that. To well, that's great. And uh, what's but a, I don't read too many books, and here's why. As editor of Nature's Press, we get about 500 manuscripts a year. So, you know, I, I've got several every week. Yes. And I end mm-hmm. up reading those things, you know. So if you want to yeah. know what I'm reading, you can look at our catalog online. <laughs> Is there, a, what, what's maybe just one out of many uh, daily practices? What's one spiritual practice you do every day that helps you, that you draw fruit from? Well, uh <clears throat> Our day at Ignatius Press is, is, is this, we, you know, well, I, I live at the press, and I am 30 feet from the chapel, so get up, shave, go to the chapel. Uh, we have mass uh, with the divine office, the lodge, integrating yes. the mass, and then other things. But I, I have come to really love the, the office. I've always loved it, but the Psalms are so important Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> because there's a language in heaven that we don't know. I mean, it, heaven is so much beyond us, but we have a little glimpse of it, and all of God's word is inspired. But the Psalms are God's inspired prayer to himself. And so when you're praying the Psalms, uh, you, you are, you're praying in the way Jesus prayed. Yes. That's how he learned to pray, the way mm-hmm. Mary prayed. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave you. I, I should have done this earlier in my life. I'm 82 years old, two couple of days ago. But I want to learn enough Hebrew to know some of the Psalms. So I started learning a bit of Hebrew. I mean, at least read the letters and everything, you know. And then online, they got these great resources. But so I get to this Psalm 63, which is said every other Sunday. And the first line, it's Elohim Eli Ata Ashareka. Elohim is a general generic word for God. It's kind of abstract. Eli means my God. Mm-hmm. God, my God. Ata means you. God, my God, you. And then the last word only used once in the whole Bible, Ashakareka. 
I wait for you like mm. someone waiting for the dawn. That is, you know it's going to come, but you're in the darkness and yeah. you're waiting for the mm -hmm. light. So beautiful. I mean, the Psalms, the Psalms really are, are they're, they're an inspired book, Michael. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Father, for being on our show. And uh, for those who are interested in learning more about uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, we do have two other podcast episodes. Oh, good. Uh, uh, with uh, Joseph Pierce, one on Chesterton and conversion, and another one on Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Uh, Father Fessio, as I mentioned, was the uh, director and um, editor-in-chief of the Ignatius Press. And Ignatius Press has actually published many works of Chesterton. Yes. So, uh, so there definitely are, are, are great resources there. Thank so thank you all uh, very much. And thank you, Father. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.